Good morning. When I was a boy, my voice sounded like that, right around 11, 12. <laughs> when I was a boy, when I would leave the house, uh, my mom or my dad would usually tell me something like, don't forget. Did you ever have those experiences? It could be a boy going to play with my friends and they would say something like, hey, hey Brent, don't forget about dinner at this time. Don't forget to be back at the house at this time. They would meet me with a little forget-me-not. Don't forget about this thing. And the reason they said that is because they loved me and they didn't want me to miss out on something or to mess something up. Paul, as he approaches the last chapter and begins this last chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, his last words to Timothy, the young man in the faith that he mentored and loved and developed He would give him two forget-me-nots, two statements he's already previously given in the previous three chapters that now he's coming again, and like a loving father to his son, before he leaves the house, Timothy, don't forget. Do you have memories like that? Of a parent telling you before you left, hey, hey don't forget about this. And as we look at this text and, and we read it, Paul is giving Timothy these don't forgets with the purpose and the intentions that he would be able to fulfill his ministry calling. And if he forgets them, if they drift out of his mind and, and out of his lifestyle, that they would mess up or impact his ability to be a person that is fulfilling his ministry of making disciples of Jesus Christ. So as you have your Bible, look over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll begin in verse... One, we'll look at verse one and two, as we notice, first and foremost, this first don't forget, this first forget me not. Don't forget that the judge has witnessed your ministry charge. If you and I hope to be a people faithful to making disciples of Jesus Christ, we, we ought not forget the ministry charge that the judge ultimately, he has witnessed it. In this truth that's set forth, we can make the mistake oftentimes of thinking it's just between you and I, or it's just between another person and, and the group that's there. But Paul reminds Timothy from the very beginning, there is the judge, not a judge, there is the great judge who is aware of all things, at all places and at all times. And Timothy, he sees your charge that I've given you, and let me give it to you again. And, and in this way, there's two reminders that Timothy is to have as he hopes to be successful in, in making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is his content and his composure. What Timothy preaches and teaches, it matters. The content matters. But also the way that he delivers it, the way that he interacts with others that will receive the message of the gospel and will reject the message of the gospel, his composure matters. So let's look first and foremost as we look at that first portion of the content that you and I proclaim as followers of Christ, as disciples, it matters. Verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And so he begins this letter, this, this chapter 4, as we're looking at now, with this solemn charge, this oath that he's giving him. 
Who is Jesus? See, theology matters. What we believe matters, young or old. Who is Jesus? And it's often known, of course, that Jesus is the second person of the triune God. The Son has come, and he's taken on the fullness of man. He is born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He laid his life down in obedience to the Father and in this make-right sacrifice on the cross. He's buried, and he raises again, and, and he walks for 40 days, and he ascends into heaven, and he's going to come again soon. Those are standard theological truths that we look at as believers and say, yeah, I believe that. But one of those that often gets forgotten is the reality that Jesus is also the final and ultimate judge. Jesus is the ultimate and eternal judge. He is the end times judge, and in light of his second coming, the weight of this charge before Timothy is the reminder that the judge knows your charge you've received, Timothy. He knows what you've been charged with and charged to do. The same eternal judge who's coming again, he does not have a limited scope. In our judicial system, something has to work its way up the courts. But Jesus is the judge of judges. He is the king of kings. And the judge of judges knows the charge that we've received as followers of Christ and as disciple makers to be a people sold out to making disciples of Jesus Christ, of all people, of all backgrounds, of all nationalities, of every tribe and nation and tongue. We have received a charge and our content that we proclaim and we communicate, it matters. And we must not forget that Jesus is the great judge. I'll give you three quick references. I'll read real quickly that reiterate this through Scripture. Romans 2.16 says that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And Jesus in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then the book of Acts, in Acts 17.31, Paul says, Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. The content that we proclaim, it matters. The word that we teach, the word that we live, the, the word that we are to build our families on and our lives on and our, and our personal decisions and our goals in life, they matter. The word matters, and what are we to do with it? We're to preach it. We are to be a preaching people. We are a preaching people, I would argue, and, and how we interact and what we say and what we type. We are a preaching people. But it's the word of God, the content that we proclaim. It matters very deeply. I'm going to walk through these four different words here that he gives us walking through this. That we are to preach the word, that is to proclaim it. When are we to proclaim the word? In season and out of season. Deer season is upon us. And all the hunters said? Very good. <laughs> it's like the loudest amen I've ever gotten. That's incredible. Noted. Just going to work in deer references into all future sermons. But we're to preach the word in season and out of season, which is another way of saying always, always be preaching the word. The word of what? The word of God. Not the word of my feelings, not the word of my emotions, not the words of what I, what I hope is true. The authoritative, final, God-breathed, the authoritative word of God. That is what we are to be about. That's what we're preaching. And what is preaching doing ultimately? It's not simply informing and saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. Preaching is saying, here's what the word of God says. You're accountable for it. Respond to it. 
Preaching is giving a call for people to transform their lives, to surrender and submit their lives to the goodness of the God of creation, the goodness of the judge who observes all things, who sustains us even in our very rebellion against him. He sustains us. The great judge is all-knowing. He's given us a conscience. He's written his law upon our hearts. But the great judge is all-knowing, and he calls us to preach the word in our lives and to live by the word and our composure that we'll look at secondly. But when we preach the word, we see that this ultimately is going to do that second word, reprove. Reprove. Think about it. Re-prove. So when the word is preached, the word of God, it meets every one of us, wherever we're at, regardless of your background, the word hits us. And regardless of our lifestyle, if we're living in a certain way or we're believing a certain thing, the word of God meets us and it reproves us. So if we're we're living in a way inconsistent with what the Word of God has for us, the Word says, no, 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 the way you think you're living, is is, that's wrong. This is the way. It reproves us. It shows us the right way. And it confronts every single person, every one of us. And here and out there, all of us are forced to come face-to-face with the Word of God that reproves us. Uh, My son, when he walks down uh, around the house, he's just high enough that I can, it's about like I can, palm his head. I don't know why I would do that, but I, when we walk down the house, his head is just big enough that when we walk somewhere, I don't have to carry him anymore. I just kind of steer his head, and he never goes in a straight line. We've got this hallway right down from his bedroom to the kitchen area, and he's never made a straight line. Even if he's going down the hallway, he's kind of ping-pong balling. You know what I'm talking about? Going back and forth. So what I do with his head, we have different doors on the way down there, as most always do, and he'll see a door open, and inevitably, guess what he's going to do? He starts to go to that door, and so all I do, I know it's going to happen. I'm not surprised. I just wait for it to start happening. I just take his head, and I nudge his head this way, and he just he goes that way. And it's super easy to be able to direct him. That's what the Word of God does to us. The Word of God regularly, even as believers, so there's the initial coming to faith and trust in Christ, where you repent and surrender yourself as you're, you being the king and authority and judge of your life, you're called to surrender authority and judgeship over your life to Jesus Christ. But now as believers, our life is a constant setting of the word of God by the spirit of God, readjusting our course. So we're being reproved and we're called to surrender ourselves to this word. But there's two responses. That's our next two words he gives us there. Those that do not receive it those that say, no, no, I'm going to go my way. I don't care what you say. He says, and rebuke. He uses that word rebuke. And so rebuke is used multiple times in the New Testament, but three times in Mark chapter 3, 8 and 9, Jesus rebukes the demons. Jesus rebukes the demons. And the picture is he's not doing coffee with the demons. Right? He's not going back and forth and be like, well, demon, that's a great point. Right? The state, it's clear as day, the reality and the authority. The demons are being rebuked because their way is wrong. And Jesus is the great authority, and he's calling them in that way the judgment that's going to come towards them. And so those that do not come to Christ, it doesn't mean we're hateful. We're to do all things with love and gentleness and respect. But there is this reality that the word of God at a certain point doesn't allow us to compromise where we're lovingly, because we care and we love people, to call them. Just as somebody's done for us, to rebuke us. If we harden against the word of God, we're called to have people that care about us enough in our life that say, you know what, I love you, 
but you're wrong. Because this is what the word says. And the rebuke is a warning of judgment that's going to be coming. So he says, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and, and what about those then that receive the word? He says to them, that's that fourth one, you, you exhort them. Exhort them, that's encouraging to be living out and to be leave the word of God. We talked about it last week. It's, it's simply to abide in Christ. It's to be living a life of aiming to master the word of God and to be mastered by the word of God. It's to be, to be understanding the word of God and then to live it out in our life better and better in our relationships, in our, in our marriages, in every aspect of our life, in our responsibilities at work, everything. It's to be consistently living out the word of God, being mastered by the word. So the content we live matters. And the judge knows the content that we will be held accountable to. But also, we move on to, to be, as we finish in verse 2, just a few words there, the composure that you maintain while you proclaim the word, it matters. The composure you maintain while you proclaim the word, it matters. He finishes there and he says, finishes off verse 2, he says, with complete patience and teaching. So preach, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Have you ever heard this saying? Even though you were right, you were wrong. Ever heard a saying like that? Uh, yeah, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you were right. Might have been their fault. But you were definitely wrong for how you went about it. You know what I'm talking about? All the guys are like, move forward. Just keep moving. This is hitting too close to home. And this can be true. There is a multitude of examples in our culture specifically and in, in, in part because of technology that allows people to disconnect our content from the composure of love we're to proclaim and the style that we proclaim the true word of God. And that disconnectedness, that inability to sit down face to face with somebody can lead us to be nasty. And to those people, even if they're proclaiming the truth but they're proclaiming it without Complete patience. Those people are to be rebuked then. Because they're doing so in a way that does not honor Christ the King, the great and final eternal judge. Our composure, it matters. We're to do so with complete patience. I will give you time. Look over to 1 Timothy 1.16. Just a couple pages back in your Bible. Timothy tells, is told by Paul to, to do so Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. And this is something that's so great about the Word of God. Here's the pattern. We're recipients of God's grace, and we're called to show grace. In Ephesians 4, we're forgiven much by Christ, and so we're to do what? Forgive as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. We're called to live out what we're recipients of. And that's what Paul is doing here with patience. He's going to start off, if you remember, he's going to start off here by talking about he is the greatest of sinners. And the Lord has shown him this perfect patience. And then he's going to say, and we'll look at it here in just a minute, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, of how Timothy watched with the patience that Paul did ministry. 
And now in our text, Paul tells Timothy, you do that too. You've received the patience, the perfect patience of the Lord, so you present the word of God. You teach and exhort and reprove and rebuke with that same patience. What you've received, you now show. What you've received, you now show. Here it is. What you've received, you now I think that was louder than the deer, amen. All right, I'm proud of us. All right, 1 Timothy 1.16. Let me read it so you can see I'm not making it up. Paul says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternity. And the picture is this. If you've done something in your life, listen, if you've done something in your life and you say there's no way the Lord could forgive me for that, what's Paul say? Let's compare resumes. I'm a murderer of Christians. What's your resume? He says, I've received the Lord's perfect patience. If he's shown me that perfect patience, what do you think he can do in your life? You see what he's doing? As perfect patience, he's demonstrated it. So, so look back over to 2 Timothy 3 as a reminder from what we talked about here recently. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So again, he's received this perfect patience of the Lord. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, he says, You, however... You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. There it is, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. And this is the picture we're to have in our life, a perfect patience. A perfect patience. Have you ever heard the saying, be careful before you pray for patience because the Lord will give you a situation to demonstrate patience? I was told that. Isn't patience the very aspect of the Christian life? That our God in heaven, knowing the intricate depth of not only our sinful actions, but our sinful thoughts, that he would actively sustain our life, every breath, in those times and seasons of serious sin and rebellion. And even the times of our life where we try to pretend like everything is good and we've got it all together, he knows. He knows the depths of our brokenness and rebellion. And yet in his patience, before we would come to Christ, that he would love us, he would send his son for us, he would lay his life down as an offering for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Perfect patience. And then he rescues us and he saves us and he doesn't just bring us to heaven with him. What's he do? He commissions us. And as we live our life, he shows this perfect patience towards us. And even Jesus in his life and his ministry, as you read the Gospels, what particular person are you, are you constantly reminded of? Wow, Jesus is really patient with that disciple. What's his name? Peter. Wow, he's patient. And then you look back at your own life and you say, wow, he's really patient. That's the patience we're to show to the Lord. Now listen, when we say that right away, I know some of us, all of us, are tempted with certain people in our life to say, but Lord, you don't understand how patient I have to be with this person. And as quickly as our voice bounces off the wall, we have our answer, don't we? Oh, really? Oh, really? Now, I could have summarized and I could have skipped over this five or six minutes of explanation and just said, be like a patient mom with her toddler. And you would have got the point. 
What a perfect demonstration of, of, of parents with their little ones as they scream and they throw fits, and yet the, the, the parent just lovingly, graciously, and kindly is there with them. That's how we're to present the gospel to other people. That's good news, isn't it? See, first, don't, don't forget that the judge has witnessed your ministry charge and our composure and our content matters. But secondly, don't forget that the judge, he will witness their response to the gospel. He's not just there for our charge. He is there to observe what takes place. He's all-knowing. He's not increasing in knowledge. I want to be clear in how I phrase that. The Lord isn't increasing in knowledge. He's all-knowing, but he's certainly aware as the perfect judge. And the judge witnesses that, first and foremost, 2A, that they will use any argument to stay in the judge's seat. They will use any argument to stay in the judge's seat. Verse 3 and 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. So advancing towards the final day, we will have masses of people that will wander off into accumulating for themselves itching ear teachers. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about these adjectives of the leaders of the lost. These different character sketches of the people, these false teachers. And we noticed in previous weeks that some will be teaching these things about uh, the resurrection really didn't or already happened, the bodily resurrection of the, of, the, of the believers. The return of Christ has already taken place. You missed it. We've, we've gotten an insight into some of the false teachings. But we focus there on the leaders and the teachers. And we got two name drops that Paul gives us of these false teachers in the church and around the church. But now what he says, Timothy, is towards the end. The masses of people will increasingly desire to hear and to have their ears tickled. So he flips it. As you start reading the letter, you think it's the false teachers that are coming in and leading everyone astray. And they're deluding the masses. But as you keep reading, who's really in charge? It's actually the masses of people who have itching ears and like a little dog, is just, who's going to give me a scratch? They're hungry to be led astray. Why are they hungry to be led astray? Why? Because they desire to suit their own passions. They desire to have their own passions suited in their life. And so they go around desiring to have some sense of spirituality, but in reality, they're like trading baseball cards. Ooh, I like that one. And this other person says, I like that one. And they're just trading cards back and forth to fit whatever will allow them to live in this sense of I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual, but I get to protect my own little idols. The leaders aren't even in charge. It's their impulses, and specifically, it's their passions. One lexicon puts it as a desire for something forbidden. Describes that word translated for us as passions as a desire for something forbidden. And listen, we shouldn't be too shocked at this, should we? We know what it's like to have something we really, really want. We know it may not be right, or it may not be socially acceptable. So we come up with reasons and we say those are the real reasons that something's happening, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? 
Let me give you, some of you are like, I don't know if I want to go with where Brent's going on this. So let me use a non-biblical example, all right? Just a basic everyday life example that you can probably relate to me in. So imagine this example, if you will. You've got an important event tomorrow night. A friend invited you. You said, yes, I'll be there. I'm excited, looking forward to it. And even right now, you're thinking in your mind, boy, I I don't really want to go tomorrow night. Matter of fact, my couch would just be an amazing date. Just me and the couch. Oh, that'd be so good. And so as the day goes by today, you start coming around, then tomorrow morning comes around, you're thinking, okay, I do not want to go. But I cannot tell this person that, hey, I got a better offer and it's my couch. I'm not coming over to this party. I'm not doing it. You knew that would be a bad idea. So what do you need to do? You've got your passion, which is the couch. And you know it's not right to just come out and say that, so you've got to create other reasons to get away with it. So what do you say? You immediately send them the response. You say, listen, I've got such a busy day at work today that I'm probably going to be like 30 minutes late. And I don't want to be the guy that shows up 30 minutes late to a party, so I'm not going to make it. Is that the real reason? Or is that the itching ear reason that you gave to protect your true desire? And so what happens? They think that's the real reason, so they solve your problem. And they get back to you and they say, hey, don't worry about it. There's going to be a ton of people late. Come on over anyway. And now what do you think? Oh, no. So you double down. You know what? Come to think of it, I've got these East Texas allergies. But it could be a cold. And I would feel terrible. I heard... Somebody with a baby is probably going to be there. I would never sleep at night if I got that baby sick. So listen, I better, I better not come. Because you know they're not going to call you on the sick baby thing, right? Now in reality, are either of those two reasons why you didn't want to be there? No. You had a deeper desire, a passion to just have some time alone. And that's what Paul says that the masses of people will do when it comes to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. They will find various reasons, various teachers. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers here and there. As long as at the end of the day, their passions for the things they know they ought not to be doing are protected. And this is why, Grace Bible, we need each other. Because even as a believer, every one of us has areas in our lives where we're tempted to crawl up on the throne of the judge. And we need the body. We need the family of God. We talk about word, worship, service, family. I am more likely to receive a harsh word from somebody that I know loves and cares about me than I am somebody that I think I don't even know you. You know what I'm talking about? So I encourage you in the context of our church family to to plant roots. And if not at Grace Bible, find a good Bible teaching church in the community and plant roots there and aim to know each other as family. So when those areas might sneak into your life or somebody else's life because you love them and care for them, you're, you're bold enough to speak truth. To say, listen, are, are you sure that's the real reason? Or is there something down here that you're protecting? I need those people in my life, and you need those people in your life. And guess what? It's called the local church. It's the Lord's gift to us together. So here's what will happen ultimately with those masses that will reject the, the truth of the word. Look at verse 5. The rejection of sound teaching, it will lead to a rejection of sound teachers. The rejection of sound teaching... It will lead to a rejection of sound teachers, Timothy, so get ready. 
In verse 5, it says this. He says, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When I was in Missouri, we had a three-story house. We had these things called basements there. Uh, I'm going to be familiar with them. And in this house, we had, uh, of course, like everybody does, fire detectors everywhere. And the batteries on those things only went out at like 2 in the morning. You know what I'm talking about? Happened for you? And we had, a, when your eye was about 1, they kept going off. It's about 2 in the morning. I flipped out of bed, and they just chirp. You know what I'm talking about? They chirp like every 30 seconds or so. So I flipped out of bed. I'm so afraid it's going to wake them because it's really loud, loud, loud chirp. And I go up there, and I would just wait. And I'd hear a chirp, and I'd go to this spot. And then it would get to a point of fear that that noise would wake up my son and disturb my family, that I would go to this mode, probably not a great idea to do this, but I would just start yanking them out of the ceiling and taking the batteries out and just laying them all there and praying we didn't have a fire for the next four hours. Right? You've done that? It was nothing personal between me and the fire detectors. Nothing personal. But at the end of the day, I'm going to protect the comfort of myself and my family. That's what Paul tells Timothy here. Timothy, you keep chirping the gospel. You're not like them. You keep chirping the gospel. Be faithful. But know this. It's not personal between those people. But eventually, you're going to threaten their comfort and their passions. And they're going to come after you. And so what's he tell them? Endure suffering. Endure suffering. Paul is soon going to die. And we're going to see that in verses 6 through 8. We're going to camp on that because the verses are absolutely incredible next week. But Paul is finishing his ministry race well. And as he finishes his race, as he knows that the day of his death and execution is coming, his concern is that young Timothy would run his race well. That's what I pray we continue to ascribe for at Grace Bible Church. That's multi-generational ministry. But while the older saints are, are nearing the finish line, their biggest burden is that the younger saints would have endurance as they run their race. And that the younger saints' biggest burden would be that they would encourage and honor the older saints as they finish their gospel disciple-making race. My, my parents will drive 600 miles at the drop of a hat to come and make Sarah and I's ministry and life easier. My dad told me that before he left. He said, listen, you just call me or text me, and we will drop everything, and we'll be here in a minute if you need us. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. It's the Lord's gift to us to endure suffering and all the hardships of life and John says the same thing. In 3 John 1, 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, that is newer believers, younger believers in the faith, are walking in the truth. Do you have great joy at watching others walk in the truth? This is our call and this is our responsibility as believers that no matter what, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Because our king is risen. There is a judge. And he's given us a gift that is the body of Christ. Next steps. Next steps. Two questions I've given you in your next steps. And the first is this. 
Am I stronger in my knowledge of the gospel? So do I understand the basics of Christ and his sinless life and his death and his resurrection and the hope that's available to me in him? Do I understand the basics of the gospel better than my composure in sharing it? So as you share the gospel, do you find yourself with your nerves firing off or a fear that says, I, I know it, but I, I just can't talk about it? All of us, I get those feelings. They're natural. Or do you have the feeling where if you're on, <clears throat> if you're on the internet or somewhere and you see something and you're just, oh, you're, you're just, you, just have, you don't respond in a biblical way. Your character, your composure doesn't match the calling of Christ. As you look at your life, which one of those is stronger? And what can you specifically do this week to make adjustments to deal with those? The best way to get stronger is to exercise that specific muscle. If you notice you're weaker in composure, specifically schedule times this week to share the gospel and to exercise composure regardless of what somebody else might say. The second question, who is one person that I will pray for and can invite to Fall Fest tonight? Fall Fest is for all ages. If you can't make it, it's okay. But know that this is for all ages. This is a great way to get to know your church family. Who is somebody that you might be able to invite to our church or specifically to Fall Fest tonight where they can hear the gospel and get to know your church family. It can be a fearful thing. I remember when I was first dating Sarah, started dating the last day of school, eighth grade. <clears throat> and, and, and right when we began dating, I think that night or maybe the next night, she invited me to meet her family. And I remember thinking, not just her family, like all her aunts and uncles. And I was like, this has escalated quickly. <laughs> right? Even as a young boy, I knew, I was like, this seems advanced. Right? But when I was able to meet her family and say, hey, these are, these are kind people. These are gracious people. One of the sweetest things that we can do for our friends that are not connected to a church family, that, are, that may not know Christ, is that you give them the opportunity to be able to meet your family. You say, no, these, are, these really are just people who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. A personal invitation can be more to somebody than you'll ever know. And that's what this is. The Lord's Supper is, I'm going to ask our servers to come forward. I'm going to explain a little bit about the Lord's Supper because this is a personal invitation in our lives. In Luke 14, Jesus gives this example in this parable. And, and he talks about, he asks his servants to go. And there's this clear application, right, to the, to the Jews that are hardening against Christ and yet this commission to go out and to go forward. And he gives this example of this great banquet that's happening. And in this great banquet, he tells them, hey, the people that have been invited, they, they've not received it. They haven't come. They haven't come to the party. He says, that's okay. Go out into the city streets and invite them in to come into my great banquet hall. And they say, we already invited them. He says, that's great. Now I want you to go out into the hedges and the highways. That's the rough areas. He says, go and invite them to come to my great banquet. The Lord's table is offered to all people. The body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was spilled. And you will find forgiveness and satisfaction if you will but partake of Christ. We partake of Christ by believing in Christ. And so there's a multitude of factors in, in, in reference to what we're doing right now. 
there is an intentional time of remembrance, but that comes after a, a clear time of warning. See, what this is doing, what we're about to partake in as, as the church gathering and, and partaking of the Lord's Supper is something that has a warning attached to it. And it has a warning because it's of deep and meaningful value. There's this warning that we shouldn't just do this just randomly. We shouldn't do this in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. And, and we honor the Lord, I think, in these three different pictures that we're able to look back at what Christ has done. That this table, this offering is for you if you have but come to Christ. If you've not confessed faith in Christ, if you've not come to Christ, that's for you to do. Receive Christ. Turn from sin and self. Leave the hedges and the highways. Leave the streets. And come to the great banquet of the Lord that is believing and trusting in Christ. He will forgive you. He makes you whole. All that come to Christ find a perfect Savior. And that's what's modeled in the context of our Lord's Supper, that our King's body was broken and His blood was poured out for us. So there's this past picture of looking behind and seeing what Jesus did for us. There's also an inward picture, an inward and around picture that we look at our own hearts and say, Jesus, as you're, as you're my King, I've trusted in you, but is there an area of my life that specifically you have your hand on that you want me to open over and surrender to you? If so, you, you pray before you partake as we do this as a family and surrender that over to the Lord. But also in that, there's a, there's a community element. There's a fellowship element that you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you say, is there hardness in my heart towards another believer? And if there is, you're to forgive them. Or you're to prayerfully extend forgiveness. As the Lord's body and blood was spilt for us, we're to be of one people, one bride for the Lord. But there's also a fond looking forward that one day we will all be gathered around the Lord's table. All of his kids will be home. The bride will be together with the groom and we will eat and drink with Jesus Christ, our bodily resurrected king, as he rules and reigns forever. So if you're struggling with pain or hurt, even as a, as, a, as a believer today, there will be a day where your body will be perfect because his body was broken for you. Come and drink deeply of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is good. He is our king. Before we distribute these, these elements, I want to demonstrate for you a little bit of what this is. This is newer. And you'll see in each of these, there's actually two cups. You'll take both of them when it comes around. You'll hold them in your hand, and one's got the unleavened bread, and one has, of course, the drink. And we'll say some words from 1 Corinthians 11 before we partake together as one body who our king's body was broken and blood was spilled for us. So let me pray for us before we distribute. Lord, you are so good and you are so kind that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us, that all that look to Christ have a perfect Savior, that you've given us this gift of the Lord's Supper to remember you, to memorialize you, and also to look forward to one day when we will partake of it with you in person. We love you. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the mission that you call us to live as your church. We're unashamed to proclaim your death until you should come again. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen.